Hi, and welcome to Follow's weekly message podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope this message inspires you and helps you follow Jesus in your community for his glory. Here's the message. Last April, someone told me that they went to watch the release of the latest Marvel movie, Endgame. And at the end of the movie, as they sat in their seat, there was barely a dry eye in the cinema. I want you to think about that for a moment. Marvel is a series of fiction movies invented around a group of make-believe superheroes. They all connect in some way and the movies tell a story about how they win battles and save the world or galaxies or whatever. I could probably tell you if I'd watched any of them. But for those who have, like my daughter Taylor, who's been sucked into the world of Marvel by her now fiancé, they'll tell me that I'm probably really missing out. Maybe one day I'll watch them all. But let's come back for a moment to people sobbing in the cinema after Endgame. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? That people would openly weep in a movie about make-believe superheroes. But isn't that the power of a story? Movies like the Marvel series or Star Wars or the superior versions like Back to the Future or Narnia or whatever epics we watch, what they have in common is that they captivate us. Most of them are built around a very similar narrative. Things start really well before falling apart and you know, kind of appearing hopeless before a hero emerges in the story to save the day and people live happily ever after. We can't get enough of these type of stories. We flock to the cinemas, we watch them over and over again because they engage our emotions and our imaginations with adventure. There's things like joy and heartbreak, fear and hope, laughter and tears. There are moments where we smile and then there's other moments where our heart is in our mouth because the tension really gets to us. We just don't know how it's going to end. But I think we all long to see the day when everything's restored to how it should be. But at key moments within the story, we just can't see how that's possible. It's kind of all hanging by a thread. And so we ride the roller coaster ride as part of the adventure. We can't wait for the next installment to come out at the movies, even if we are watching on a big screen from the sidelines. We feel like we become part of the story. We kind of get swept up in it all. What is it that makes us connect with stories like this? What if all of these wonderful stories are simply echoing the great story of all stories? God's story. What if we're captivated by stories like this because God has placed eternity in our hearts and we're all wired to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves, a divine story? Well, here's the ultimate irony. We're part of one, and yet we don't see or experience the gospel like that. We don't feel the emotion of it like we do when we watch a movie. We don't get swept up in the adventure or even feel as connected to the characters as the ones we do in a movie the ones that Hollywood invents. You don't believe me? Well, do you know why people cried in Endgame? I had to do some research. In other words, I had to ask Taylor. But if you haven't seen it and you want to, block your ears now. This is your official spoiler alert. People cried because Iron Man died. Now give me a moment. It's very sad. Very sad. When's the last time you wept over the death of Jesus? You see, we're not captivated by the gospel in the same way that we're captivated by Marvel. How can that be possible? 
Well, it's only possible if we reduce the gospel down to some dry doctrine, a bit of head knowledge, a few verses we can quote, some systematic theology we can learn, and some sentences we can fit on a little track to hand to someone on the street. It's only possible when we minimize this immense good news so it becomes something that we can fit in a little box and we can drag and drop wherever it's convenient in our schedule. Perhaps an hour on a Sunday morning or a quick prayer in a time of crisis. It's only possible when we turn the gospel into a glorified version of Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory where we've got the golden ticket and now we just go through the motions and wait until we die or Jesus returns and we graduate to the heavenly version of the Chocolate Factory where we can sort of sit around and strum harps on a cloud. You know what I think of that version of the gospel? It's boring. Nobody's captivated by a story like that. I don't even like harps, so I certainly don't want to be floating around on a cloud for eternity playing one. Now, I don't think any of us actually believe that view of the gospel. But the point is this. We often live our lives like we do. And yet, at the same time, we're part of the greatest story ever told. And we're not on the sidelines. We're in the adventure. It's not a made-up superhero we're trusting in, but the true hero of all history. The person of Jesus Christ and the scriptures from beginning to end tell his story. From the very beginning was the word, Jesus. All things were created in him and through him and for him. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the superhero above all other heroes, the name that is above every other name. And through all the ups and downs in this book and throughout human history, we can still live confidently and with endless hope because when we get to the end of this book, the Bible, the book of Revelation, we get to know how his story ends. And so here's spoiler alert number two. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for his people. He's coming back for his creation. And he is coming to make all things new. This is how the story ends. And it's where we find a perpetual fountain of hope and joy, no matter what life throws at us. And in the meantime, between his ascension to heaven and his return back to earth, Jesus is at work in his new creation. And he invites you and he invites me as his co-workers to join him in this adventure by living for him as members of the kingdom of God that he instituted through his death and through his resurrection. And it will be an adventure. But let's not kid ourselves and think it'll be easy. It won't be easy. Look at the characters in the New Testament. They were shipwrecked. They were stoned. They were thrown in prison, persecuted, falsely accused, even killed for their faith. This adventure won't always look and feel like we want it to. But the important thing is this, that we're in it. And as God continues to write this great story that will last for all eternity, you and I and every person who is in Christ is caught up in this story. In fact, he's writing it in and through our lives. Now, if that doesn't grip us and get us up in the morning and keep us passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's a fair chance we haven't fully grasped the gospel. That's what this series is all about. I pray it expands our view to see that the gospel is ever greater, that even when we think we have a handle on this good news, there is so much more to know, so much more to learn, and so much more to experience in this relationship with God 
and with one another, not just one day when we graduate to heaven, but right now, even while we await his return to earth. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, he has set eternity in the human heart, and yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It's an ever greater gospel. But like any epic story, there are exhilarating highs, and at the same time, there are crushing lows. And one of those is found in Genesis chapter 3, in what we refer to as the fall. And that's what we're looking at today. Last week, Adam painted a wonderful picture of what God created in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You know, the gospel doesn't start at, you're a sinner. You know, it's often how it's presented to us, isn't it? But it doesn't start there. It starts at, in the beginning, God. That's why a gospel series must always start there. And Ad's painted a wonderful picture of how incredible our God is. Our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right there in the beginning. One God, three persons, creating the universe for us to enjoy. And yet despite the fact that He is so big and so powerful that He can speak it all into being by His Word, He's still at the same time so personal that He invites each of us into intimate relationship with Him. How awesome! is our God. He's incredible, isn't he? So in the garden there in Genesis 1 and 2, we see both of those things in action, the immense creativity and power of God and the intimate relationship between God and mankind. We also see life-giving relationship between the man and the woman and we see God's love for everything that he's created. And so in this setting, which we could well describe as paradise, Adam and Eve are invited to work with God in the garden by being fruitful, increasing in number, and ruling and subduing the earth together. This is God's great dream for creation. Everything functioning as he created it to, in harmony and peace and with love and with joy. And at the end of creating it all, he looked back and he looked over everything he created and he said, it is very good. But that very good creation lasts for two chapters. Here it is. It lasts for that long. And the rest of this book is all about the ever greater gospel where a gracious God is cleaning up the mess that we've created. And like in any epic story, just when you think everything was good there in the garden, an enemy emerged. One who opposed God and who comes to steal, kill and destroy. He is the great enemy in God's great story. We know him as the devil or Satan. And when he appears in the garden, he comes in the form of a serpent. And so let's pick it up together this morning at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will surely die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. 
Now, I don't want us to miss this morning how big this moment was. Adam and Eve had everything they needed to flourish in life. They had this beautiful garden with everything God had created for them to enjoy. But most of all, within that garden, they experienced untainted relationship with God and with one another and with all of creation. There was only one thing that they were to avoid in the garden, that was eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God warned them if they ate from that one tree, they would surely die. And so they could enjoy everything else except that one tree. And so here they were in paradise, where they could walk and talk with their creator God in the garden. And yet the devil slithered into that environment and he convinced Adam and Eve that God was not enough. Why would you settle for God when you could be your own God? Eat the fruit and you will become like him. And so they fell for that great temptation. They took the fruit, they ate, and their eyes were opened. But to their surprise, they didn't become like God. In fact, things started to unravel. You know, in 2020, in our world, we are in the midst of a global pandemic called coronavirus. People speculate about why this happened, where it originated from. Is it God punishing someone for something they've done or said? Well, I want to encourage you this morning, let's not get sucked into that kind of speculation about where it originated from. Because the source of this pandemic is actually the moment we're reading about in Genesis chapter 3. This moment is the moment the destructive force of sin entered God's very good creation. And we can trace all of the evil, all of the sin and suffering and decay of this world all the way back to its epicenter here in the garden. As I said before, every great story has moments of tension where all seems lost. This is one of the moments in God's story, the story that we're immersed in and part of where everything seemed dark. It seemed hopeless. Adam and Eve had blown it. It seemed like there was no way out. Could everything really be lost? Will it ever go back to what it was like in the garden before the fall? Will evil win the day? Or will a hero emerge? At this moment of the story, these questions were unanswered. But in God's great story, apart from Jesus' horrific death on the cross, this is the saddest and the darkest day in human history. It's a day that has and still affects every one of us right now. And so let's look at some of the ways this morning this moment changed everything. The first way is this, that it broke relationship between God and mankind. You see, they had an atmosphere that we read about in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which is incredible. It's a life that none of us can fully relate to because we've never experienced creation pre-sin. This experience that Adam and Eve had was one of incredible blessing, fruitful and enjoyable work, stunning freedom and loving relationships, unblemished intimacy with God. Adam and Eve literally didn't have a worry in the world. I want you to think of those days you have on vacation. You know, uh, you're in a beautiful location somewhere and the weather's great and you've got no stress or anxiety and you're just relaxed by the pool or the, on the beach, just enjoying life. Or maybe think of a day at work where everything goes brilliantly and you feel that you're living out part of your life's purpose. You're doing what God created you to do and there's a, a sense of kind of deep fulfillment. Or think of those times with your family or friends where there's a beautiful connection and you share precious moments of, of love and joy together. For us, those moments are truly wonderful. But in reality, they're fleeting. But for Adam and Eve, those moments were every moment. 
They had no sense of fear, no sense of worry, no sense of shame. You could probably say that they had it all. But the moment they ate that fruit and decided to do things their own way, everything changed. Their eyes were open and for the first time they felt shame and fear. And when they heard God in the garden, instead of running to him, instead of joyfully enjoying his presence, they hid. Let's pick it up at verse 7. It says, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. You know, the most tragic part of the story for Adam and Eve comes at the very end of the chapter. We see it in verse 23, because not only is there now fear and tension, but the final consequence for them was that the Lord banished them from the garden altogether. Now, that sounds awful, being banished from such a beautiful place. It'd be like having your holiday end early or be like losing that dream job where you find so much joy, or it might be like the experience of a relationship breakdown. But the real tragedy is not what they were banished from. It was who they were banished from. You see, the Garden of Eden represented that place on earth where God dwelt. And so they weren't just cast from a lovely garden. They were actually cast out from God's presence. When people ask me what I think hell is, the best definition I can give is hell is an eternity separated from the presence of God. Now, if God is love, you see, if he is everything good and right and holy, if in his presence is unceasing joy, to be apart from that for eternity, that's hell. Well, for Adam and Eve, this would have felt like hell on earth. The first consequence of their sin was broken relationship between God and mankind as they were cast out of his presence. The second tragic result of this sin was broken relationship between the man and the woman. Let's pick it up at verse 11. It says, And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. You see, in God's good design, there was a beautiful relationship between man and woman, between husband and wife. Now, if you happen to be a married person watching this, or perhaps uh, you were married once, or maybe you've just observed your parents' marriage, you'll know what it's like when everything is going well at home. Most of us can think of times where home felt like that safe space. You know, a a place where there's peace and harmony and everyone's getting along well. And the worst thing you experience in a time like that is maybe catching your parents have a passionate smooch standing around in the kitchen. And when you go, ooh, your dad starts giving you the story about the birds and the bees. That's, That's never happened in our house. But other than that, that orcs moment, everything is great. We all enjoy times of peace like that in our houses, in our homes. But on the other hand, We can probably also think of times when that was not the case. When the husband and wife are fighting, they're yelling, or even worse, the silent treatment. You don't enjoy being at home in those times because there's constant tension. It's like you're kind of tiptoeing around on eggshells and everything's out of sync. 
Well, let me tell you, the epicenter of that environment we've all experienced is once again Genesis chapter 3. I think if you can imagine those two scenarios in your own life, you can start to get a glimpse of what life was like pre-fall and post-fall for Adam and Eve. Before the fall, they were completely naked and they did not care in the slightest. There was nothing hidden in that space. They had complete transparency, no tension. They were free to be with one another in enjoyable and in loving relationship. They were ruling and caring for creation together. But post-fall is a very different story. As soon as they disobey God and sin enters God's very good creation, immediately they want to hide from each other. They want to cover things up. There's suspicion. It's everyone for themselves. And they start to shift the blame around. Who's at fault for this terrible situation? Well, Adam, he blames Eve and God. He said, it's this woman that you put here with me. Eve says, hey, it's not my fault. The devil made me do it. Nobody's taking responsibility. Everybody's blaming someone else. And most tragically, this beautiful relationship between man and woman is now completely broken. God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I want you to bear in mind what God asked them to do together in Genesis chapter 1. He said, I want you to subdue and rule over creation together. Well, not anymore. Eve, you'll long for the good old days when you had that relationship. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. What a tragic turn of events. Beautiful harmony and cooperation is replaced with suspicion, fear, shame, dominance, and brokenness between God and humanity and between man and woman. Third tragic consequence of their sin was a brokenness of God's very good creation. Well, you remember what God said when he finished his work in creation. He, he finished all of his work and he looked back at it and he said, it was very good. Well, the moment sin entered creation, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. We see straight away that the woman is now having pain in childbirth. And the earth, which was so enjoyable before, is now a hard place. Work has now lost its joy and becomes a slog. And the ground is filled with thorns and thistles. And so the next time you're in the garden cursing the fact that your plants don't grow and the weeds never stop, we'll remember why. Genesis chapter 3. And the dust that they came from will now be the dust that they return to because death has now also become a reality within this creation. This is why we refer to this catastrophic event as the fall. Because from where Adam and Eve were in this incredible privileged position with God, where everything was right as God created it to be, and where they ended up after their disobedience is one massive fall. As we reread this account, it should break our hearts because their story has become our story. And we've all contributed in many ways to the brokenness of it all. We live in a world of constant heartbreak in the way that we treat one another, a world full of poverty and corruption and injustice and division and disease, evil, pain, all these things. This is the story. We're part of it. And it all started in Genesis chapter 3. And so in the midst of all of this, in an ever greater gospel series, what's the big takeaway from this particular part of the story? Is this great story finished before it even really gets started? 
Is this situation as hopeless as it seems? Well, I can report today in another spoiler alert that the answer is no, because we know the end of the story. And even in the midst of the diabolical darkness of chapter 3, in the worst situation we can ever imagine when Adam and Eve had it all and stuffed it all up, we're given a little glimpse of hope and light. And it's found in verses 14 and 15. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. One of the things I love about God is that God's always at work. Even in the midst of the, the blackest days, God is still at work. And this particular part of the passage, verse 15, is what theologians have called the proto-evangelium. Now, what does that mean? Well, proto means first, and evangelium means good news or gospel. In other words, this is the very first declaration of the gospel in Scripture. It's found not in one of the gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but in the very first book of the Bible, In Genesis chapter 3, in the midst of horrific darkness where everything seems lost, God points to a new reality coming where his mercy triumphs over his judgment and where the law is superseded by grace. And it's a little glimmer of good news, of a promised hero who will emerge within this great story to overcome the great enemy, the devil. The Baker commentary of the Bible says, At this particular stage of the story, an as yet unidentified seed of the woman will engage the serpent in combat and emerge victorious. Well, church, he's no longer unidentified. His name is Jesus, and he's the hero in our story. He's the center of our faith, and he is where true life is found even through the darkness. And he's who we remember when we gather around the communion table like we're going to this morning. While Jesus was stuck on the, struck on the cross, the enemy was crushed. I remember the movie Narnia, and I love the scene where the devil and all the demons celebrate Jesus' death, only to soon discover that what seemed like the most crushing defeat was actually the most profound victory the world has ever seen. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, the devil, along with sin and death, were defeated. And so why is this full part of the story so important in an ever greater gospel? Well, it's important for this reason. If we don't comprehend the tragedy of the fall, we'll never fully appreciate the triumph of the cross. Let me say that again. If we don't comprehend the tragedy of the fall, we'll never fully appreciate the triumph of the of the cross. Lockie's going to unpack that for us a bit more next week, but needless to say, the cross has redeemed our relationship with God the Father by removing the obstacle of sin which took Christ took on our behalf. The cross has redeemed our relationships with one another by reversing the curse and giving us the opportunity to enjoy redeemed, spirit-empowered love as he designed us to. And the cross has also given us a hope even in the darkness, for the future redemption of all creation because he's coming back to redeem and restore all things. They won't just be very good. They'll be perfect. And in Christ, we'll be part of it. Jesus has reversed 
the curse. As we partake of the bread and the cup, we're reminded that we no longer stand in death and despair, but in Christ we stand in victory and hope as we remember him together. And so this morning, let's take the bread and let's eat this bread today in remembrance of his body broken for us. So let's do that now. At that last supper, when they'd finished eating the bread, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood shed for you. Drink this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. And so let's do that this morning together. Jesus, we just want to thank you this morning for what you did for us in your life and your death and in your resurrection. And this morning we remember that our price has been paid because you took it for us. And all the mess that started in Genesis 3, you've come to redeem it, to restore us and to restore your creation. And Lord, we celebrate that together in unity around the Lord's Supper and we choose to remember you. We don't want to forget, but we want to come back to this moment over and over and over again because we know it's the only hope that we have in life. You, Jesus, are our only hope. And so, Lord, I pray that we would remember that we're part of a great story. We're not just um, people who look at it in a dry way and we just go through the motions, but we're part of this story, that we are living in this ever greater gospel and that you've invited us to journey with you and you're continuing to write this story through us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would repent of those times when we've just gone through the emotions and we, we haven't actually grasped that we're part of something bigger and greater than we can even fully comprehend. But Lord, we're part of something you're doing, and that is restoring and redeeming creation as we await for you to return and finish it completely. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be excited, to be grateful, to be filled with joy as we live out the adventure every single day, in every moment, in every opportunity, that we would wring out our lives for your glory and to see your name honoured. Today we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to Follow Online. To stay updated, go to follow.church. As the people of God, let's stay connected and follow the words of Jesus to love one another.